0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Jesse Irwin, Vice President of Security and Privacy at Mercury Public Affairs. We discuss how to communicate security to non-technical people, what security might look like for small businesses, and developing reasonable models for security outcomes. We also meet her neighborhood gang of grannies who've learned how to hack back. Enjoy the show. Hi, Jesse. Thank you for joining me on the security podcast.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I am looking forward to causing all kinds of security shenanigans this morning.
0: <laughs> we'll do our best.
1: Okay. So. We
0: have a lot to cover. And I want to set things up by having you talk about what you've you're kind of in a new role, I think, than things you've done previously for a while. I want to talk about things you've done previously for a little while. So maybe you can um, tell our amazing listeners what kind of work and what kinds of things we're focused on when it comes to security.
1: Sure. So I originally come to working in technology and in security not from an engineering standpoint, but from more of a communications uh, role. And I'm much more human centric in how I look at things and how I try to um, to build ways for people to be safe. So a lot of the work that I have done in the past has really been awareness work and education work, which is my one of my happiest places because I think that especially with technology, uh, there's a lot of burden put on users and users don't necessarily know or understand all of the intricacies that are going on inside of machines and inside of all this crap that we use. And it's not necessarily fair to expect them to become experts overnight just because they want to be able to use a computer and have fun with their friends or their family or conduct business. So a lot of the work I started with has really been making technology much more approachable. And I still do that. um, But it's in a much different way. So can you give an example
0: of something you'd you'd worked on in the past or done that, you know, shows how you've made that more approachable and communicable for folks?
1: Sure. So probably the thing I am most proud of is I accidentally became a password cheerleader. Um, At one password, I was security evangelist. And even before I joined the team, I was the first person screaming on social media, or I was the first person making very bad password jokes based on the Kardashians at work, Uh-oh. um, to try to at least get people to, um, look at some of the day-to-day choices they make that are security choices and to make better ones. So I did anything from, you know, getting little ASCII art bunnies that tweet password advice. I'm, I'm just saying it works. Um, to any number of memes and any number of gifts and anything else they had to do to kind of point out some of the absurdities that we have in in security roles.
0: Did you get a mascot too? I feel like all cheerleaders should have a good mascot.
1: I really think the mascot was my bunny. The bunny really were, was. I, okay.
0: Because I think f- for probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast or other security podcasts come from a technical background. And I think one thing that's really important is having people like you who are in that you're in that sort of interstitial space of having being able to speak technology talk as it were but t- you know there's like you said there's just such a vast majority of people who consume technology nowadays that are not technologists and don't even understand what everyone else is talking about so language can i just ask you a little bit like did you adjust
1: how you talked to people about technology absolutely so one of the first things that I did, um, and this might accidentally be because I was a foreign language major in college, I studied French. Um, I know a lot about how to talk when other people don't know the words that are coming out of your face. So one of the first things that I do is I drop a lot of the jargon. I mean, the average person doesn't know what encryption is. And if they've heard of the word before, it probably is something for terrorists and not for them. Um you know, password manager is not an intuitive word to most people. So I could literally say, well, you need a password app. And suddenly the whole world becomes a different place for someone who didn't realize that that might exist. So having to come to people on their own terms and recognize that, you know, the average person's not going to use the word hacked the way the security person uses the word hacked. Um, It's not going to mean the same thing. And just accepting that those moments that from a professional ear sound like nails on a chalkboard are going to happen, that completely changed the way that I do things. I also realized no matter how many reading tests that we all, you know, pass and all that reading comprehension and SAT words, big words don't make other people feel that comfortable. Um, so just trying to simplify it so that you're not confusing someone or giving people context really to the big word when you use it and hiding that definition um, into an explanation kind of gives them more of a chance to feel like you're on their side, but also gives you a chance to clue them in and bring them up to speed.
0: So you've done some of this work too with like students in schools, right?
1: Yes, I have spent an extraordinary amount of time hanging out with teachers and hanging out with kids. And the way that kids learn and the way that teachers learn are two completely different things. Um, but ultimately, that's one of the crowds that's the most or two of the crowds that are the most excited about getting online and playing with technology and creating stuff and making it happen. So there is this thing where kids don't really think anything's bad going to happen to them on the internet because they're used to adults being around or they think that they can handle it or they're invincible. And teachers don't really think about anything bad happening on the internet because why would anyone do anything bad to their students' homework? And really resetting expectations there and saying, hold on, you're not wrong. The average person might not attack the homework, but they might be going after, you know, a criminal might want to go after data or somebody might be trying to do something in the background that you may not have recognized um, would cause a problem for your classroom or for your student that's possible, um, was really a wake-up call for a lot of the people that I've worked with.
0: And so now you're looking a lot more at, and, and along those lines, I mean, it feels like a natural sort of evolution of that, of sort of looking at what security might look like for non-technical companies, right? I mean, again, I, like, I think a lot of us think about security in the context of Twitters and Netflix and Facebook and whatever other lives we sort of live in. And the vast majority of organizations out there are still ultimately consumers of technology and users of technology, but they're not themselves technology companies.
1: Absolutely. So I have to find a better set of statistics because the ones in my head are a little older. But um, I remember specifically reading that over half of the United States economy is small businesses. And a lot of the people that I work with aren't in tech companies, they tend to be in um, government organizations or in verticals that maybe use technology but don't necessarily ship their own technology. So they've never had to think about the security thing that everyone's freaking out about right now. And for the most part, it's very hard um, because you have to basically do a risk assessment upfront and look at where people are in the IT process or their own technology procurement process and say, okay, what makes sense here? Because right now, especially after going to RSA, and especially after, you know, paying as much attention to security as they do, it seems like every security person, maybe not every security person, but a lot of them think it's completely realistic to expect companies to start security teams, to hire lots of engineers and run these tools that are, you know, five to six figure purchases a year, that's not going to work for the average business. You're either going to have to go somewhere for security services and maybe not even run the tools yourself. You might need some sort of management to take place there for you, or you're going to have to focus on the way that things are configured, you know, for you and the five to 10 people that you work with in your office and get everyone on the same page about putting security into the workflow process. Not all of that's going to require engineers and not every company is going to be able to spend, you know, $3 million on security, especially if they're the law firm down the street or the mortgage broker around the corner.
0: So that makes and that makes perfect sense to me. I'm in sort of I live in a fairly small town and it's all pretty much little small businesses like that and like our dentist's office, right? I mean, so how do these organizations even get started with something like this?
1: It really depends on how much technology is in the office, I think, and who is in charge of it, so to speak. So some of what I've seen, um, I can think of a law firm that I absolutely love, and they have a receptionist who part-time handles IT things. So what that means for a law firm is that their receptionist is really their point of contact in terms of making security decisions, because the rest of the lawyers are a little busy with the briefs and the immigration work and all of the other things that they have going on. So in that particular space, I'd say, okay, so the first thing we need to figure out is what you already have and what people are using. Inventory is really boring, but once you know what you have and what people use, you are able to say, okay, which of these machines have the most up-to-date software? which of these machines can't have the most up-to-date software because they're running something super specialized that, you know, doesn't necessarily meet a um, technology company's big OS update. We see that happen all the time. Um, And then just knowing that that person, if if I'm able to give that person, you know, the bare rules, the bare necessities, the two-factor, the strong password, and some of the network information to look out for or those very well-known but tricky security configurations, you know, per device or for the overall office network or even for the Wi-Fi router. That kind of stuff, it's it's not intuitive for the person who's part-time IT to turn on or to even know about, but having that information, making it accessible and having those tricks that we learn when we're crawling around on the floor and hooking up network cables, making that more accessible to everyone else kind of helps the small guy too.
0: And are there, I mean, what kind of resources exist for these folks? Or, you know, what's out there? I mean,
1: it really depends. What I tend to be considered a resource is usually a blog post that comes from a security company. And what stinks about that sometimes is that depending on the security company doing the marketing or the content, uh, the focus on a specific threat is going to really be weird. So, you know, I remember talking to a lawyer at RSA. And he said, I'm really worried about zero days. And I thought, why are you worried about zero days? That's, right. that's, that's not a thing for you. Yeah. <laughs> um. But it, it really depends. People go and find this information themselves. They typically will trust whatever comes up early in a Google result, or they will keep an eye on what comes out in the media. And then kind of trace the follow the breadcrumbs back to the company, you know, that a spokesperson that said a smart thing said or something like that. So it's kind of like I tend to see people pay a lot more attention to marketing than necessarily knowing a security person that they can go and tap and ask questions of. Um, And that's a lot of the problem right now, because if a marketing company wants to sell antivirus, they're going to give small business tips about antivirus um, or just, you know, staying away from malware. If a company wants to sell zero day detection, I, okay, yes. have fun with that. Oh, but not dear. everybody's got zero days in their threat model.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, threat model, there's a word that most organizations like this size aren't even going to understand, right?
1: Yes. And it's a word I actually try to avoid using because it's one of those weird words that people haven't heard of before. Typically, the way to to get someone to think of that information. And I, I actually have a worksheet for this that I mocked up, but it's as simple as asking someone, what does your company do? How long has your company done it for? Do you have a website? Do you have social media? So you kind of get an idea of what's out there about the business already. And then asking, you know, what kinds of people might want to, or, you know, might not be for the kind of work that I do. In the case of an immigration lawyer right now, all kinds of people, um, where maybe three months ago, that wasn't the case. But it's, it's really important just to ask the question that spurs the adversarial thinking. You know, if you're a teacher, who might want to get your information? All teachers. The first thing they say is, my students, they want to change their grades. <laughs> oh, that's but classic. Then, but then, you know, opening of the conversation to say, well, actually, parents might want to get at that information too. Or if you think a little bit further, um, you might have a criminal who realizes that you teach 150 kids through seven periods in one day. So your gradebook or your something else or your email account is going to be, you know, very valuable to them as an attack tool. And all of a sudden, the internet goes from being that fun place that we were talking about earlier, where you just make blog posts. And I don't know, you throw post, gifts post everywhere. Post bunny and pictures.
0: That's what it's for, right? Cat pictures, exactly. bunny gifts.
1: Come on. It goes from being that to, oh, yeah, I actually do have stuff that's valuable. Maybe I should do something about it. And it's that moment when people realize that they need to do something about it. Not that I told them to do something about it, but that they need to do something about it. That tends to be the place where people get running with security, but it's, it's really about the inventorying, the introduction to that adversarial thinking and then figuring out what resources they have and what makes sense. Because if you don't have a million dollars to secure your business, that's okay. If you only have three people or you only have 10 people and your biggest threat is, you know, passwords getting exposed or someone clicking a phishing link in an email or You know, the person who messes with invoices accidentally getting ransomware, that's the really low-hanging fruit that most businesses get caught up in from day to day. And not the really big, you know, sexy spy thriller hack attacks that none of us could really, really withstand, even if we wanted to, even the big tech companies.
0: Well, actually, and along the lines, you just triggered a thought for me of... Um, sort of easy ways to help people avoid things like phishing and those kinds of things have what did you see the news about
1: netflix little
0: um, tool that just they just released stethoscope
1: i did see that i love it when people ship new tools like that i also want the super super easy version of that tool to exist so that anybody can use it and that's when i think like can I come up with a security gang with a whole bunch of like graphic designers and a few more like open source software people? Can What can we do? Because we really basically need a glam squad for these things. Let's be honest. <laughs> ah!
0: We tried to sort of make a glam squad or like a, a set of superheroes out of the um, the program committee uh, for, for our conference last year. Um, we ran out of marketing budget. I was really bummed about it.
1: I feel like we can figure this out, this is <laughs> fine.
0: This is totally fine. But that is the point, like I saw that, I hadn't thought about this until we started talking this morning that I thought that tool was really fantastic and I was really um, happy to see it, but your point is is valid that the law office down the street isn't gonna be able to just go grab some open source tool and I mean, that's just, that's not that's not possible.
1: Yeah, they're not gonna have a person who can be a tool monkey or babysit, you know, um, thing that's spitting out numbers and metrics and dashboards at them. And that's okay. There's, you know, there's stuff that they can do. But overall, I think what I'm looking for and what I'm hoping happens is that we start having more tools that are small business friendly. And in terms of even the user interface, something that can be navigated by someone without them having to be an expert in all of those weird computery words. I right. mean, I remember what it looked like the first time that I had to use um, Maltego for some social media investigative journalism I was jokingly doing, and it was impossible. I didn't know what any of that stuff meant, and I knew I had to figure it out because they couldn't submit what I was doing in any other format. So it, it was one of those bite the bullet moments. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's even going to have, you know, two days to figure out that time. If they're in the middle of a work project or they are literally worried about making sure enough money comes through the door to make sure their employees are paid, health insurance is covered and taxes go where they're supposed to go. Right. I mean, security is never going to beat those three things until it makes one of them not possible.
0: I've even found trying to get trying to introduce friends, non-technical friends to using, you know, password managers that in many cases, even those are just sort of frustrating to them. So there's the there's a level of of familiarity and expertise that even those I feel demand of some people that they're just not they're not capable of and they get frustrated with it and they stop using it.
1: Absolutely. So something that I have experienced, uh, I have what I call an old lady gang on my street. Um, they're all fabulous women over the age of 70. I have this picture
0: of like all these old ladies with purses, like beating up criminals, but I don't think that's what you mean. (laughs) It's,
1: it's a little bit like that, but they have pugs, not purses. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, something that I, I've really paid a lot of attention to as security people, we tell people to use tools. So we'll say use two factor, use a password manager, except. Using a password manager is really freaking hard if you didn't know what it was in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it can be really, really time consuming. So part of what we have to be really good at doing is the actual project management of switching people over from their insecure practice to their secure practice. One of my tricks with the password manager and my old lady gang, because I knew they weren't as comfortable with their machines as I am, um, was to... First of all, say, okay, let's focus on the most important online accounts in your life. Those Mm -hmm. are the ones that are tied to your identity. Those are the ones that are tied to your bank account. And those are the ones that are tied to your email, which are how you get into the social media and the identity things and the bank stuff. And what we did was we basically made it was basically a stoplight, but I gave examples for each one. The red ones were the highest risk, and those were the ones that we had to practice with first. Um, the yellow ones were things that could take a little more time, but needed to be introduced to the password manager within two weeks. And then the green ones were, eh, there's not really anything important in here. Let's not stress out about those. And what that did was that gave me 10 accounts that I could show them how to begin to use the password manager with and go through the password reset process with. And we had a week where we only worked on the red stuff, and they literally practiced with each other getting things set up together. So Aww. instead of being instead of being by themselves, which is also a huge problem yeah. with things like a password manager, um, they could learn from each other. It's almost best if you can get two people using it at once and they can be password buddies. It it's like sounds- it's like
0: book club, but with passwords. And if you just added a lot of wine or vodka, mm-hmm. whatever, it seems like that would
1: I you know, you could get your local password clubs going. I like it. Actually, you're going to want the wine when you start dealing with the two-factor text messages (laughs) and the token.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's probably true. That's probably true. I convinced my mother to even put a lock on her phone by convincing her that my children would get in and mess with her stuff.
1: I have a wonderful story about this. So I've, I've known my old lady gang for a couple of years. And one of the funniest things that happened is that one of them, I kept telling her, you really want to make sure that you have a passcode on your phone and on your iPad, because if you don't, someone can get in it. Well, my neighbor comes back from, you know, two or three weeks at her home in Napa. And she says, you'll never guess what I did. And I thought, okay, you were in Napa. I mean, did you drink too much wine? Like, did you like meet some handsome actor and run off to the sunset? (laughs) She's like, no, no, no. My grandchildren, they came to visit. And they were spending too much time on their iPads and their iPhones and they didn't have passcodes set up. So grandma put passcodes on all of their devices and wouldn't unlock them until they had enough family time and social time together. Granny literally hacked
0: back. And That's I'm awesome. very proud of
1: that. Good job, Granny.
0: Yeah. And you know those, those are the right arguments. If you can just find the right arguments uh, to get people to focus on it, then you're, you're, you're at least a further down the road there. Okay, so I have one more kind of general area of things that I wanted to talk to you about, which is thinking you've been doing about or work on sort of building models and, and talking about what are reasonable outcomes or expectations for security. Um, and I feel like even the, re- the stoplight thing is a great almost example of that for sort of personal security right? What are some reasonable expectations? And you can kind of you've you bucketed those into into different categories that help people not have this just massive set of information to try to sort through and figure out what to prioritize. So maybe you could talk to me a little bit about that. Maybe it's I don't know if it's more theoretical, or if you have some practical examples.
1: I have some that are a little more theoretical, especially in terms of building teams and getting people together. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about, um, we can't expect people, no matter what we do, to be 100% on top of all of the security prevention tips and tricks and anti-phishing malware, whatever business out there. So one of the things I've thought a lot about lately is, what is our cyber equivalent to stop, drop, and roll? And it sounds so silly, But most people that I work with within my own company and outside of my company and in my community, if they click on the phishing link or they do something they're not supposed to, or they even not even click on it, but if they see the phishing email pop up or something grody starts happening, people feel like they need to do something when actually they need to just do nothing. They need to cancel it out and run in the opposite direction. So we don't really have any good education or any really good tips about how to respond if you find the thing in the first place, because people, they'll leave the stupid browser window open and they will click on the thing right.
0: eventually. It'll happen.
1: <laughs> so so they just have it, they're
0: just looking at it, up, you know, like they can't just make it go away. And it's just that it's just staring at them,
1: willing them eventually back in. Click on me. It really is. But coming up with ways to teach people how to respond before you've clicked, Mm -hmm. that involves the report and the delete button is really, really important. And then coming up with ways, even with kids, for people to say, hey, something funny is going on on my computer. I don't know what it is. And then documenting that so that when they take it to an IT person, or they take it to the Apple store, or, you know, before it needs to get wiped, there is something besides, I think I got hacked Mm -hmm. as information that you can give to the technical people to help take care of it. I mean, if you take your dog to the vet and you're like, well, my dog's making funny noises, that's not really going to help the vet Mm -hmm. out much. And sometimes with computers, the average person's doing the equivalent. So I think um, having things to look out for besides, oh, an app is acting glitchy or it's crashing is really important. But once again, we need that cyberstrap drop and roll. I don't know what it is yet. But right now it's flag, delete and run, (laughs) delete and run. It's it's not (laughs) quite as catchy, but it's not. But I think it's three words. We can get there from that. I've really been thinking about what makes sense in terms of, of telling businesses they need to care about security. When you look at the day-to-day conversations that we have as an industry, um, you know, either through some of our trade publications or through social media, The things that people say will never, ever, ever work for small business. And I think that the most important things that we can convey to small businesses are that you need to know what you have. You need to be in a spot where you're able to know which configurations for tools and computers and apps at the bare minimum need to be set. And as an industry, we also need to work really, really hard to make sure that in terms of not just the interface, but that our tools are built in ways that the average person can actually use them. Because otherwise, the person who handles these things part-time in IT is not going to be able to do it. You know, if you have a full-time IT administrator, they might be able to get an intern once in a while in a small business, but you're never going to have, you're almost never going to be able to find a very security-minded IT administrator so the person who's going to be making your decisions in a small business is not necessarily going to be a security expert. Sometimes the ones who are security experts start telling you to do things like use PGP, which probably isn't anything <laughs> we should tell any average business person no, to do. No, <laughs>
0: please don't. No, never.
1: Never. Um, but I, I think we need a lot more tools that are, if they're consumer friendly, they're small business friendly. It's, it's basically the same audience. We have to really focus on that and we have to be prepared to basically look at security and say, how do we make this work for, you know, half a person's time? How do we make it work for one person who's dedicated IT? And then what should someone who has a team of maybe three to five members on the IT? program? Like, what do we what do we tell them to do? And then from there, where do you even start with security? At what point do you need to actually have a security hire? And how can you help that security hire, build programs and think in a way that's going to produce returns for you and business, you know, for all of the hate that comes to compliance and security, that's where a lot of security budget comes in for big mm-hmm. companies, because being able to, to comply with things like PCI, no matter how broken the hackers think it is, um, being able to comply with that changes the conversation for salespeople within a business. Right. Yeah, And that's something I've seen time and time again. So I'm, I'm really in a spot where it's like, where do you where do you get the, what's your maturity model if you're a small business? Because it's never going to be ha- having one of those threat maps in a full-blown like, security operations center. Like Your security operations center is probably going to be your password manager. Yeah. And I don't think we're there yet, but thinking about at least making that first hire make sense and recognizing where you are in security and that you can always improve and always be better is super important. We can't have it all at once. We have to accept incremental trade-offs and incremental improvements. And we cannot expect small businesses to just be, you know, wrapped up like an Israeli cyber spy unit, first day of business, or within 48 hours of hiring some security geek to walk in and fix all of their it It makes me
0: wonder, I mean, what the what's the front line of information for you know like some kind of small business association? And I'm curious you know what those groups are, what kind of information those groups are providing even to small businesses. Have you looked at that at all? I've looked at
1: that a little bit. Um, part of what really got me thinking about this is that when I was growing up, um, my grandparents ran a business from their home and it was a very successful business, but they didn't necessarily have a lot of ties with the local business community. So in some places you might have a chamber of commerce that's very active, and that gets people together and has events and tries finding a security person to come in once a year um, for education purposes. And other places, it might just be that, you know, if for example, like not that bakeries have a ridiculous threat model unless they have those internet connected baking <laughs> machines, which is a whole we other haven't even r- gone there, issue. yeah. Maybe it's that the information comes through someone who's doing taxes. I've seen a lot of accountants say, hey if you see emails like this, please ignore them. It's a money scam. It's, it's someone's trying to steal your W-2s. And that's a huge problem. Um, but I, I tend to see it come through either a small business um, cooperative or organizations like that are the accountants and the financial people who have to keep your money safe. And they know that your email is how the money is going to get out if you don't know better. Interesting.
0: So you need, you need to, uh, we need a like the more, you know, campaign Do you remember those things. <laughs>
1: oh yes. I love them. I use that. I can see quite a you bit.
0: being like the face of the security the more you knows and just like the rainbow graphics and the whole it would be amazing.
1: What I really want to do, um, and I work on this a lot when I'm hanging out with my non-technical, non-security nerd friends, is I'm finding that the more that I make security something attractive, like the more the more I make jokes about, well, you know, my password's longer than your so password dear. or my two-factor set up better than your two-factor having a little bit of like competition and a little bit of collaborative Mm -hmm. spirit around it makes it really fun. And it becomes part of the culture of things that you joke about. You know, I do this with clients quite a bit, um, where I will say, okay, well, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm sending you an attachment. I promise it's not malware, but if it looks funny, I'm not responsible. (laughs) And even little jokes like that get Mm -hmm. the point across. Instead of them going, oh my gosh, I don't know what this is. How do I figure it out? And getting lost in some like Wikipedia, Google, Twitter hole of how do I inspect this thing quickly? Yeah, and I think
0: that the humor takes away some of the shame too, right? Like, I think that's the other piece of it. I I don't know if you saw the talk that um, Masha Sadova gave about some of the stuff that she'd done at Salesforce. I hate to use the term gamification because I always feel like I need to take a shower after I do that. But... Mm-hmm. She did do interesting things to sort of make – there was there were sort of challenges and fun things and, like, you know, people could um, challenge people who were trying to get through that didn't have their badge to get through the doors and there were, you know, sort of just interesting things it did. But I thought the biggest thing about the program she'd done was just ways to take the sort of shame out of, um, you know, and fear out of that, you know, that people are sort of afraid to talk about it if, if they had done something bad, right? Um, they don't want to go tell someone they don't want to report um,
1: what had happened, those kinds of things. And Absolutely. And making people feel bad when they know that they have failed or just making them feel bad when they are trying to get it yeah. together is the number one way that we set our average consumer and our average business up for failure. You know, if someone walks in and says, hey, I'm having a problem with my router. It's being really weird. I'm not sure what's up. And some security nerd looks at it and says, "Oh my God, you're an idiot. Why would you ever configure it this way?" That's that's not even just being a bad person. That's being a really bad ambassador for the kind of work that we do. And we have to work really, really hard to say yes in the right way to me to positively reinforce people when they make good decisions. If we don't, I I really don't know what the future looks like. But it's making sure people feel good when they are doing things that are really awkward and weird and not intuitive. Um, that is going to help us out, especially in the password arena. I'm sorry, people at RSA who said that they're going to kill the password, but <laughs> um, it's <laughs> it, it's just not going to happen. It's it's going to be around for a while. We're going to have to deal with it because. Once you think you killed it, you then have to convince pretty much everybody in the world who uses username and password as a credential to shift to your thing that mm. killed it. And, and no, no, that's not how this works. It's going to take forever. We're not going to do it overnight. So
0: I'm going to close out with the question I ask everyone. I think I you might have already mentioned this um, a- along the way, but I'll I'll, I'll ask it anyways because it might be different. I I have this theory, especially as when I first started getting into this, so as as an editor at O'Reilly, I was I don't I knew nothing really about security um, beyond thinking that I was pretty good at managing my own. And I learned quickly that I was not as good as I could be. But I came in sort of as an outsider. And I talked to a lot of people about the work they do and how they do it and what they do. And I started discovering that I feel like everybody has a secret superpower, whether they're aware of it or not. And, and I think it's important for people to embrace their inner superhero. Um, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, catching falling cars out of the sky or anything like that, but ways that we do things that can help people be safer. So what's your secret superpower or not so secret superpower?
1: Mm, I think probably my secret superpower is making all of this stuff that's really, really hard to do totally fun when someone has to sit down and do the work for it. And the fun's not necessarily—it's um, it, not necessarily like let's make a game out of finding all your passwords. The fun is really when you get to the point where you're almost done, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I was just looking at this magazine, or I was just watching the Kardashians, and I think that now you're hacker Kardashian, and it's totally fine."
0: Well, I thought password cheerleader was a pretty good super like superpower
1: as well. I have to say. I mean, that would one, that one's an okay one. but really being the password cheerleader is getting people to enjoy doing that bit of the work to change their passwords. And I just feel like making the good jokes about it and making the laughs happen is what gets them going. So Perfect. I think that's an excellent superpower.
0: Well, that's it for the the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciated having you on here.
1: It was so much fun. And I I think we got some shenanigans going on. So our our goal has been met. Impossible. I think so. I think pretty much the, the old lady pug gang um might be the highlight for me. So. Oh, yeah. Next time you're in San Francisco, I, I feel like I need to make some introductions. I, I can't wait to I can't wait to meet them.
0: Okay. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Jesse is at Jesse Soros Rex. You can subscribe to The Security Podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.